Welcome to the 3B3 Podcast, a weekly look at the world of hockey with your hosts, Cassie, Pat, and Patrick. So we left off asking how Yarmo Kekalainen's all-in gambit at the trade deadline was going to play if they fail to make the playoffs. Is that going to sour the waters for everyone else next year or in this offseason? Or do we think it's kind of somebody did it, somebody had to be the first. It doesn't mean it's not successful, but somebody else might be. So there may be another gambler in the midst is what I'm saying. I certainly hope there is. Um, It would be a shame to see this kind of go by the wayside. I think teams and organizations can only show so much patience or so much uh, restraint even though, you know, buying at the trade deadline is kind of a fool's errand. Um, you know, most big teams, they'll make their moves in Jan- early January unless they're pressed by a need. But what choice does Kekalainen have? He had to do something. And it. if I were a Columbus Blue Jackets fan, I'd, I'd be applauding what he did, whether they kind of bow out um of the playoff race here in the closing weeks, which looks unlikely, or if they're bounced in the first round, because, Hey, he's taking a chance. And although he's not going to draft until, you know, we colonize on Mars. um, (laughs) uh, So weeks, right? Weeks. Yeah. (laughs) No, he, he, he has to do something. Um, you know, well, the NHL is a copycat league. I don't know that this really changes anything if Columbus doesn't make it into playoffs, which, as Pat said, they likely will. Um, simply because Canadian people running the teams are often very conservative-minded when it comes to doing that sort of thing. So I don't know that even if, if Columbus is successful, that they'll like step out of their little um, box and and actually go there. And if Columbus turns out to not be successful, then I kind of think that a lot of a number of people anyway, I don't know how many, but I, I kind of think they're all going to write it off as, oh, well, you know, he's a European. He doesn't know any better. So just say 200 hockey men. 200 hockey men, trademark. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll write it off. And that, so you actually touched on something that was kind of an underlying theme that I was hoping to prod into with this question is he's the best of my knowledge. And I'm trying to walk through all 31 teams in my head right now. He is the only non-North American born general manager right now uh, in the NHL. So that's kind of where I was thinking is, you know, Oh, we'll let, you know, if he does it, it's successful, but we still don't have to follow it because, you know, it's, it's Yarmo Kekalainen. He's, he's not a good, he's not a good Canadian boy. Or right. he's not a, you know, he's he's not part of the the Patrick family or the Shiro family. He's not a, he's he's only grudgingly one of the two hundred hockey men. Yeah. So I was kind of curious, you know, I I think to your point, Pat, you know, I I have always been trade deadline is a fool's errand because you have twenty games left, you're you're playing against the house making trades at that late in the game. Um, you don't, you know, you have basically five games to evaluate and find out where these guys fit or, you know, and trying to find a deal 
for a player that you think will fit. And by that point, the prices have gone up because you're, you're sort of buying day of game tickets in a certain sense for one of the premier events in the season. And everyone's trying to get in before this deadline, which is why I think the guys that do the moves earlier on have much more success. I mean, I'm trying to think in my brain was the last time we saw a trade deadline deal that resulted in um, putting that team so significantly over the top, they became a monster. Patrick Wah? I think he wasn't trade deadline. <laughs> no, that yeah, that was December. Yeah. If I remember correctly, uh, Sean McAdoo of The Athletic did a whole piece on this. And yeah. I think it was only seven players since... I think it's just the the 06 deadline or the uh, the 0405 lockout. Only seven players traded on deadline day have actually gone on to win the cup. Yeah, but it wasn't. But and, and if I remember the article right, and, and I love McIndoe by the way. Oh my god! If I remember the article right, some of them weren't even that season. They were the season after. The most you know the most notorious one generally being Marian Hosa, but. Um, <clears throat> But here's the thing: is the is the we're all you're all thinking the cup. That's not always the motivation for a trade deadline like move. Sometimes it's just to save someone's job so they get into playoffs. Oh yeah, yeah. I a prime example of that, Cassie, is Doug Wilson. Yeah. San Jose Shark. That guy keeps his job every year beyond passing a reason and understanding. Because his team makes it to the playoffs because he mortgage he kicks the can down the road. Mm-hmm. Just gets enough, just gets enough in the offseason, just does enough to get them in, make them look like a Stanley Cup finalist. They fall apart inevitably. And but they made the playoffs. You know, yep. it's it's what what's the old saying is good is the enemy of great. And that's kind of why I was coming back to the Kekalainen question is, if you don't take the risk, you don't know the reward, and you don't know the failure, and you don't learn from it, right? So I I was kind of chewing on this and thinking of that whole Billy Bean scenario, too, is, you know, the first guy out of the gate to do the Moneyball thing, you know, had a, a modicum of success, but who employed it next? Well, it was the Red Sox, and what did they do? Yeah. So someone else picked up the the mantle, so to speak, and maybe tweaked a few things they may have seen him doing wrong or may have improved on something or maybe just had that extra little bit of salary to, to spend that the A's didn't, and boom, there you go. So I'll be interested to see. I'm very interested to see. I hope trade deadline goes the way of the Dodo, to be honest with you, as far as it being a big buildup. I'd, because I'd rather encourage them to make these kinds of deals earlier on rather than waiting to the last minute. Cause I think there's more impact to the team. So let me pose this question to you. Uh, both of you being, you know, current and former uh, residents of WHL cities in Canadian hockey league, they have their, their draft or their trade windows where there's like two week periods uh, two or three times during the season uh, where you can actually move a player. Would it be more beneficial to the hockey men and potential progressives uh, like Kekalainen if there were small windows where they could actually make these transactions rather than open door policy from 
48 hours past the Stanley Cup final till this arbitrary deadline two months before the end of the regular season. You're, you're talking like a transfer window, like in European football, soccer? Yeah. Yeah, yeah where they have a summer and winter transfer windows, yeah. Yeah. Basically, you have one, let's, for argument's sake, uh, end of November, early December, so before the traditional Christian holiday season. Mm-hmm. And then another one, uh, let's just say end of January, so the two weeks after the All-Star break. Hmm. I don't know that I don't know that GMs would go for that. Oh, of course not. But <laughs> but would it make their jobs easier? I think they'll find a way to hang themselves because they do inevitably. You know, I don't think there's a problem we can solve that they'll find a way not to break. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like finding the... loopholes, they'll they'll find a way to ruin it for everybody. Exactly. I mean, we're sitting here on the precipice of of a potential another lockout. Now, the doom and gloom side aside, why? Because the GMs who unequivocally won the last lockout, right? The mm-hmm. the owners won the last lockout in a walk, mm-hmm. but it cost all of us a season of NHL hockey. And what's the first thing they started doing? Finding ways to screw themselves again under the news system. So whenever there's a, you know, loophole Lou wasn't the only one making wonky ass contracts that put us back in this sort of staring down the barrel of a gun of how much, how many games we're going to lose, you know, next season. NHL GMs play a game of, of uh, the tragedy of the commons I don't know if you guys know the theory. It's an economic theory. <laughs> yep. uh, and and the theory goes that the traditional thinking of it is that uh, four farmers share a field in common. The field can support three cows from each farmer. One farmer decides, well, you know, if I sneak one more cow on there, no one will notice and it'll be fine. And everybody notices and they sneak, you know, another cow on there. And then the whole field is ruined. Because it can't support all those cows. So so that's what the NHL GMs do. Is they all make these rules for themselves. And they all think, oh, this is, this is great. But what if we just tweaked it a little bit for us? No one will notice. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and then you get teams like Chicago who, who find a partner in Arizona who solves all their cap problems. Mm-hmm. You know, those you, you find those small market teams or those teams that have good ownership or stable ownership that have the salary cap that can take on a bad contract and you get a player that we overpaid and we'll take one of your prospects who's underpaid Mm win-win yep so i i'm just curious to see i really want i hope beyond hope that kekalainen's you know sort of pushing all pushing all of his stack into the center of the table while he's sitting on a 7-2 showing you know is going to work because that's kind of what he had Right. Nobody. He was in an unmitigated disaster of position. He's damned if he does. And he's damned if he does, because there wasn't anything he could do that's going to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you know, he uh, um, if he makes it, if, if Columbus actually makes it into like the second or third round, especially if they make it to the conference final, then I think you're going to see other GMs looking around going, well, it worked for him. Maybe it'll work for us. 
Um, but if they go out in the first round, it's going to be one of those people are kind of mullet over. It's like, should we or shouldn't we? Because it did help them a little bit, but I really want to. So I, I don't know. I think it's going to depend a lot on, on how far Columbus gets. And that's disappointing to me because, uh, yeah, that's just disappointing to me. Because you should, I mean, there's no way to reward someone for doing this because the reward is winning of games and winning in the playoff games. But there's no sort of like, you know, the most daring GM of the year award. You know, <laughs> something to acknowledge the fact that that he, he took that big steaming pile of Jurassic Park poo and at least formed it into something. Yeah. Whether it's going to pay off is, yeah, but... And the other thing that people keep saying is at the end of the day, and I hate that phrase, by the way, because every day has an end. Um, mm-hmm. They've got 30 plus million in cap space if none of these guys sign. And I said, well, that's great. Find me $30 million worth of players that are UFAs next year. <laughs> that, that you actually want. Right. Exactly. You know, looking at the UFA, and and this is the other part of the problem I was kind of leaning into with this question is um, – to your point about transfer windows, Pat, the contract structures are such that if you get a if you get a player that's a UFA at 26 and has any sort of talent or caliber, what's going to happen to him? They're going to get, you know, a seven-year max deal, and those are rare and hard to find, and end up being overpaid because what happens inevitably, five years on, they hit their 30s. And we started, we're starting to see the decline of players that reach that sort of 30-year-old plateau. And now you're still stuck with two, three years of that guy left on that deal. But that's what Phoenix is for. You just said that. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if, Ottawa actually, if, if Eugene Melnick actually had money and would spend money, Ottawa could be another dumping ground for those contracts. But yeah. And it gets even worse because managers know that these will end up being terrible contracts, but they they probably do it under the guise that this is going to be someone else's problem in all likelihood at the end of the at the end of this contract. Mm -hmm. Just because I've got a short shelf life as a general manager, I've got a short (laughs) shelf life as general manager. You know, coaches might outlast me the way. You know, front office structure has just evolved, if you can even really call it that. It's we've let the old guys hang around longer, so we've given them fancier titles and more underlings. Underlings, yeah. I love that word. Um, well, I mean, you know, it's the other the other issue too is that you sign a guy for seven years. It's not even a matter of am I going to be in this job in seven years. It's also a matter of. I can always trade him because nobody wants to stay in a place where they're not wanted. Because players say that all the time. It's like, well, I don't want to, you know, I'm glad that I got traded here because at least they want me, you know. And uh, if a team starts, even if they have a no trade clause, even if they have a no movement clause, it's still ridiculously easy to move these guys. You're, you rarely see a player who's like, no, I don't want to leave. I'm staying here for the next, you know, like two years. And then he stays for the next two years. You almost never see that. So it's kind of, it, it, it's an illusion of control giving players no trade clauses and no movement clauses because eventually they can be pressured into like waiving those. Well, and 
<clears throat> excuse me, I think we're starting to see fewer of those handed out, honestly, because I'll count. I'll I'll contradict you a little bit. Um, it, some GMs get into very tight positions with guys. They inherit guys from the prior guy who screwed up in a contract, mm-hmm. and they try and move them, and those guys hold all the cards, right? And so now that GM is stuck with the unenviable task of saying, well, prime example, Martin St. Louis. Yeah. Where was he going? New York. Took New a York. year and a half. Yeah. New York knew that. <laughs> At the end of the day, New York, the Rangers knew that. And I said, at the end of the day, again, that's another $5 I owe that swear jar. Um, <laughs> New York knew that. So they, you know, I'm sure the negotiations took a year and a half because New York went, hey, we understand this guy wants to come here. Yeah. Well, we're going to give you a bag of Nathan's famous hot dogs for him. That's mm-hmm. not enough. Well, that's what we're going to offer right now. You know, and then just continuing to walk, drive them to walk the deal up to something that Tampa Bay would be like, okay, fine. You know, for crying out loud, we'll take it because he doesn't want to be here. And, you know, blah, blah. He still played very well when he didn't want to be there. But, right. And I, and again, I'm going to say this. I'm going to go back to Doug Wilson, who's another prime example. There were times that he could not make his team better if he wanted to because he had Pavelski, Marlowe, and Thornton on no-move clauses, full new, move, full new moves, and those guys weren't signing off on any trades because they had the, they had the California life. Now, that, I'm not saying that as a way that, that those guys don't care about winning and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, but would you want to move from California to Toronto? Or, or Ottawa? <laughs> I moved from San Jose to Boston. <laughs> well, yeah, but you were traded, right? No, I wasn't traded. Right. So <laughs> you you willingly win, and I'm not saying they're bad cities, but come on, right? No, I know. It was, it's <laughs> it's like leaving Tampa, especially right. with how they've played for the last five years. Yeah, you may want out of an organization because they're a bad team. You know, Ottawa's and Flores. I'm sure those guys are kind of struggling. To, to lure free agents and make themselves better, even with the life that's, you know, especially in Florida, even with the, you know, the climate and the, all of the other stuff that goes around with it. But a bad team is a bad team. A good team like San Jose and a comfortable life in a very nice area. You moving? It's yeah, hard to say yes. Right. <laughs> it's It's hard for, it would be hard for me and I'm going to project, it would be hard for me as someone sitting there on a full new move clause. Someone comes to me and says, you know, it would really help you, really help this team out if you would accept a trade somewhere. No. <laughs> I'm not uprooting my family. You gave me a no move clause. So. Right. And I, and I mean, I'm not saying that, that it doesn't work. I'm saying that, that inevitably it doesn't work. Eventually, most of those guys actually are pressured into waiving those and, and going elsewhere. But but no, I mean, you know, it, it's. Well, I think we're younger guys. It's easier. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of some of the younger guys that get on that second or that first full NHL deal where they can get a no move clause and if they don't get a bridge deal or something. Um, and they get it, they're more apt to say, yeah, fine, you know, I want out of here and move mm-hmm. it. But I think as you get into that 27, 28, 29, and it does, and these are people, right? Mm-hmm. So you start 
settling down, you've got a family, you've got kids, it's very hard to uproot them that way. So, and general managers know that. And I think I've noticed on Doug Wilson's last few contracts, there have not been no move, no trade clauses, which is, which is a, a, a change for him because that guy handed them out like they were Pez for yeah. the longest time. A lot of a lot of general managers did, and I'm like, do you understand what you're doing to yourself with those? <laughs> it's like, well, why are you giving this player no trade, no move clause? I mean, don't you get what that what what that's going to do to you, <laughs> to your job? Yeah, I, I the whole thing baffles me to be honest. Why I understand why players want them. Don't get me wrong, and I understand why players want like a seven eight year guaranteed contract too i mean i don't blame them it's like if you can get it then get it but you know general managers handing those things out i'm kind of like what are you doing you're just you're you're doing this against your best interest (laughs) yeah exactly you know cassie you brought up something interesting and that's the idea that players want these you know seven eight year deals that basically gives them a guaranteed number to work Mm -hmm. with and I've always thought, and I'll go back to the, the Doug Wilson jar here, I've always thought that Joe Thornton, ever since his crazy entry-level contract, which they used to be bonkers before the uh, 0405 lock, lockout, um, Joe Thornton is, let's see, sixth in career contract value all-time in the NHL over $108 million in money signed on the dotted line. He only signed three-year deals after he uh, his first uh, renegotiation with Boston and then every subsequent contract up until this past offseason with San Jose. And he has made so much money for himself. And it, I mean, it's a chicken and egg kind of situation because – how much money does, you know, an NHL player really need to live a comfortable life after he retires? But my goodness, some of these players leave so much on the on the table and they kind of restrict themselves by signing these long term deals. I totally and, agree. I totally oh, yeah, agree yeah. that that they should that that's the stupidest thing for them to want to do, but you know, that's that they all want to do it because they see it as security, as, you know, not just security, I guess, but like, um, and what's the word I'm looking for? It is security, but it's it's being able to stay in one place and not Continuity. having to uproot. Yeah, thank you. Um, and like Patrick was saying, not uproot their family, and and you know, it's. But in the end, who stays with the team for the full length of that seven, eight year long contract? Unless you're Sidney Crosby or Stamkos. Right. So far, yeah. So uh, far. My, it's it's funny you bring that up because I always go back and forth on this. You know, why would I, if I put myself in that position, why would I want to sign? You know, I'm looking at Nathan McKinnon, right, who is on, you know, a sweetheart of a deal. Now, back then, it was a little bit high uh, in, in percentage of the cap, right? Same thing mm-hmm. with Crosby. You know, when Crosby signed for his eight. Point seven million a year on that big deal. Everyone was like, "Oh my God!" You know, but the cap increases three to five percent a year. So over time, the value of his, you know, the value of this contract compared to the cap goes down. 
because the cap's always sort of bumping up, and by the time you reach, you know, the end of that contract, his his actual hit as a percentage of the cap has shrunk. Um, so you know, to the to the McKinnons and the Stamkoses and the Crosbys, they want to lock in because on. To, to sort of come back to your point about why as a player would I want to do that, I fight with the notion of I want to sign because NHL contracts are guaranteed. And if I get injured three years in and my play starts to slide, I'm still guaranteed that money. Mm-hmm. So that's my safety net. So, and to your point, Pat, as far as how much they need to live, that documentary, I think it was one of the 30 for 30s about player salaries across a lot of sports and um it was called money i think i forget what the name of it was but it was a fantastic documentary dug into you know you think about in relationship to our lives well i'm three years old i've been working since i was 18 i've got probably another 15 or 16 years left to work and over that time i've been earning money these guys have 10 to 12 years to earn money to carry them through 60 years of their lives or 30 or 40 or 50 years. Me, I've got, you know, 40 or 50 years of my life to earn my money to carry me through 20 or 25 years. So I think in the old days when guys worked three or four jobs as they played hockey or they had a quote unquote summer job as they played hockey. It was a little bit different as far as signing big deals and moving around, whereas today, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to formulate this correctly, um, they, they lock in the big deal and know now that they can live comfortably afterwards, whereas the old days, these guys had to sort of scratch and claw and fight for everything they could get and still work a summer job and to do all of these things and and still end up having to take you know jobs after they retired because they they didn't make enough you know doing all of that work in the summer and playing hockey professionally now these guys don't have to do it so much because the because people saw what happened to like um Bertie Kosar was a prime example in that documentary yeah I think he's Jack Johnson right Mm-hmm. You know, whose parents absolutely eviscerated everything he'd built up. So you, there's that sort of, you don't know what's going to happen, you know, and, and these guys are being a little bit wiser with their money and they're sort of not living that lavish lifestyle beyond their means when they're kids. So kind of coming back to Pat's point in a very circuitous way, they could sign for less if they wanted to. But we're in a capitalist society. It's a free market economy. What are you going to do? Yeah. Well, I mean, Cros- you can. Crosby does. Crosby signs for less. Well, he's he's a good Canadian boy. He's a he's a good Ontario boy. <laughs> Crosby signs for less, but yet, as I'm looking at this chart of uh, career earnings, I always have bookmarked. He is fourth in NHL history already, yeah. and he is right. 31. Um, but it, it kind of. Backtrack a little. So we're seeing this kind of battle that's going to play out over the next, let's say, 18 months as we get closer to the doomsday clock and we got to talk about lockouts again. 
on a day-to-day basis. Um, <laughs> there's going to be a battle over... <laughs> no, go who, on. I'm sorry. <laughs> who, who earns? Who earns? Who burns. Is this a Norris conversation all of a sudden? <laughs> um, Wait, does he have the most points in the NHL for defense? Yes, he does. Oh, then he's going to win the Norris. So oh. he's an Oris, right? Bobby Oris. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, yeah. There we yeah. go. Ah, so. Seven or eight year contracts, yet these players still get no movement clauses. I feel like there, there's like no negotiation when it comes to this. I feel like there should be trade offs. Take the short term deals for, you know, have this extra protection, and and you don't need both because what what we're seeing now with the mega deals is everything is bonus laden. So these wise players and their you know agents or whomever they the agents set up, you know, partnerships with financial investors, grabbing all that cash up front, they're, they're setting themselves up for life. Yet, why do, why do these players also need the no movement contracts to go with them? It kind of baffles me, like a, a John Tavares' contract where 90 whatever percent is paid to him every July 1st. That, that contract kind of takes care of itself. It it really can't be moved to more than three or four other teams. Well, it can on July 2nd. Of the, you know, yeah, second of the, last year. Yeah. Well, there's, I, I think it tails off. I think it's one of those that it's, that it's heavy up front and tails off. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a sweet spot on that sort of curve down that if you wanted him at 34, or 35 years old, you wait till July 2nd of that year because they will have already paid them out. You're on the hook for that salary for that year. And I think of, I, I want to say it really does tail off as far as the, as far as the bonuses after about the fourth or fifth year, I think because they backload them, right? Because they know John Tavares is going to start declining soon. So there you go. That makes a movable yeah. contract. And this is just as we're coming out of the era of those, you know, 12 year massive cap circumventing deals that, you know, cough, le- Ovechkin, cough, yeah. um, Hosa, et cetera, et cetera. Cough, cough, um, cough, cough, Kovalchuk. <laughs> oh, but he retired. Pronger, <clears throat> pronger. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. One time was it, weren't there like two teams paying pronger and he was working for the NHL? Yes. <laughs> Philadelphia. And he hadn't officially retired because he still wanted to get paid by those teams. Yeah. Well, and he was in the he was in the Hockey Hall of Fame, not having retired while working for the NHL and still drawing a salary from two tapes. Yep. Good for him. You know. <laughs> hey, you know what? If, if you, you can find, do it. <laughs> if you find him, if you find a loophole that big, you go and get a Mack truck and you sit in front <laughs> like some old seventies TV show and you drive that sucker through there, grinning from ear to ear, waving at everybody. <laughs> Heck yeah. Blowing your horn as you go by. Exactly. <laughs> Stick the thumb up out the window. Uh-huh. But, but but you know if, if his career ended in Edmonton, he would have signed those retirement papers immediately. <laughs> this is this is actually probably true. <laughs> uh his wife would force a pen in his hand, you know. If uh-huh. all the urban legends are true, and they are. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I was just—I was like, "How do you're working for the NHL 
<laughs> and still getting NHL salary and then get nominated and inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. See, that's like, the crazy part. It's like, how the heck does the Hall of Fame sign off on that one? You've never officially retired, so technically you've never you don't have you don't qualify you don't qualify just does you have to be retired for like technically for like three years before you can even be eligible to the best of my knowledge you have to have not been playing hockey for three years now whether now whether he found that giant loophole and i've never looked at the phrasing that giant loophole that says not playing hockey versus retired there it is, right? Mm-hmm. The legalese that we all get that we all get stuck in, which is coming back to Pat's point, why John Tavares' contract is like minimum salary, maximum signing bonus. Because yeah. it all works for the AAV in the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for now, of course, because I mean these contracts will be the next thing that are quasi outlawed or there's going to be the you can only 50 percent of the contract annually can be signing bonus not you know 95 percent or whatever just like we saw with the spreading out the money to create the aav it needs to be within a certain ratio yeah yeah Uh, like 17 million dollars in the first year one million dollar in the eighth year as your salary, yeah. Mm. My my question to you is: is who's the owner that's going to complain about it, though? Because the ones that are doing it are the ones that can afford it. And it gen- this kind of stuff generally doesn't happen until there's a crunch on some of those top tier ownership groups. I mean, Melnick is the first name that comes to mind, but. I mean, he he doesn't have a lot of um, ammunition as far as uh, arguments they can make both for and against anything these days. So, I think it I think it could be a trade off with the NHLPA, the NHLPA wanting something um, like less escrow or guaranteed escrow per year, and the the owners like countering with. Okay, well, if we do that, then we're not going to give you these like ten or eight year long deals or with all these signing bonuses and stuff. Yeah, but I think as far as bullets in the chamber of what the owners can give back for an ask like that, that's to me the Olympics would be the first one. If oh yeah. Player, you know, because that's if the players came and said we want you know fixed escrow and you know capped or whatever, GMs would be like, great, we'll give you the Olympics. You know, start low. I mean, negotiation tactic, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I I mean, that's the only way I could see that happening, where they get rid of these kinds of contracts, if it was some kind of give and take with the PA. But, but yeah, no, I mean, what you're saying is totally right. That's what they're going to start out with. Definitely. And that's kind of where I'm... Sorry, go ahead, Pat. Maybe there is a reason for optimism, because, I mean, we're talking about very... Not so much from, you know, a player's perspective, but looking at the league as a whole, these are pretty minor issues um, that could probably easily come to some sort of middle ground, which is that I think that was a a banned word uh, back in uh, 
2012 finding middle ground on anything because there was this there was a sticking point it, it's got to get to 50 50 you know basically revenue needs to be split straight down the middle and that's why we lost you know we ended up with a truncated 48 game schedule and that's why the leafs made the playoffs that year so um the 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 team all the uh retired players that didn't have the financial wherewithal to stop working after hockey um that's what they're complaining about oh you mean the team that has the same jerseys as tampa bay only tampa bay's is styled like the detroit red wings Uh, correct (laughs) thank you for (laughs) describing them as detroit's more so, it, it's Toronto's <laughs> colors, but Tampa, De- or, uh, or, or but Detroit's Toronto, jersey, Detroit's yeah. jersey with Tampa or with Toronto's Toronto, uh huh, Toronto, or Torontoite. De- <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, I, I, uh, well, I'm, I'm sure you guys haven't heard me say it, but I've been saying that for years. I was like looking at those jerseys when they debuted, going, Iserman really, really missed his Red Wings jerseys, didn't he? The Tampa Bay Maple Wings. Yes. We were actually throwing that around, something like that. <laughs> Red Leafs, Maple Wings. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, it's, um, I had a friend. Um, he's actually British. He's a, a New York Rangers fan. Poor guy. And uh, he uh, was calling when the Atlanta Thrashers moved to Winnipeg. They were the um, Atlanta Peg Thrasher Jets. To make Thrasher Jets. I was calling him Winlanta Jet Jet Thirth. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but back 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 to the uh, the team that has a does the jerseys like Tampa. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. now I don't know. I mean the the lockout. The the Olympics and escrow are going to be the two things that like really stick. Those are the sticking points for the the PA and you know unions are there to to make sure that that rep, they represent a group that isn't going to get totally skinned. But in the end, the ownership is still going to have the final say. So they're they're to make sure that the there's not excessive bleeding. <laughs> in a lot of cases so um so yeah it'll be interesting to see how that plays out what what the nhl will ask for in order for the pa to get those two things if they do my question to you is the the owners put a flag in the ground and said we will lose this season to get this do you Mm -hmm. ever see a scenario that the players will do the same no 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 they don't they don't have the they don't have the fortitude to strike i don't think as a group as a union and i'm not very well versed in you know group economics or or or, or labor practices but they're very much players are all out for themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, these deals that are, are written benefit the, the immediate crop of players. Those that are 
um, those that are looking to get their next contract within, you know, a calendar year from the signing of a labor agreement, not so much, you know, let me worry about what the next level of entry level contracts will get and what powers they have coming out of them, knowing that we could have some sort of, uh, you know, retirement pension fund that's properly stacked up. So I'll be collecting a nice paycheck for the rest of my life, even though I didn't get everything I wanted today. You know, it's. They're short-sighted is what you're saying. They, they very much are where the typical argument we hear played out through the media is, wait a minute. So we worked hard last time through contract negotiation so you could get yours. But then what about me? And that. The question isn't asked, well, what about that guy down there who's, you know, 19 and just played his first season and he's kind of screwed over for a little while longer? Um, who could potentially earn us five, six, seven million more over the lifetime of our deal? You know, because, oh, they're a young, exciting player. Maybe they'll, you know, draw in a few more eyeballs that can, you know, raise hockey-related revenue year in, year out. So, Yeah, I mean, and I get what you're saying is that they should be looking towards their pension and towards their, like, um, their salary, their current salary, and not screw over the people coming up behind them. <laughs> but the other thing, too, though, to keep in mind is that um, – they're they've been taught all their careers that the guy behind them is going to take their job and so they don't have a lot of sympathy for the guy behind them because <laughs> that guy's going to take their job if they're not careful so um so yeah they they don't really i don't know i mean i've always kind of wondered about professional sports like uh unions because they don't seem to get very far somehow. They always end up with the short end of the stick. And and I can never figure out why exactly. That's a good point. I, you know, I think it's just some, something within the dynamics of business versus entertainment. And the NHL is strictly run as a business. Um it's kind of crazy. You, you just described, you know, something similar to um, why I think, oh, hearing all the players, we heard Brendan Shanahan uh, early in the, the William Nylander contract issues leading into training camp. Well, when I played for Detroit, we all had to take a little less to bring the team together. Mm -hmm. Well, but just like you said, Cassie, and it, it's like thinking about teams like Ottawa, like the New York Rangers, who are quote unquote tanking. These guys aren't going out of their way to lose because they want to, because they're costing themselves money and potentially roster spots next year. So it's it it it's kind of weird. We're damned if we do, damned if we don't. It's it is such a catch twenty two. It is such a catch twenty two. You know, it's to get better, you have to get worse. Yeah. And those players that go down with you on the slide become tainted goods. Yeah, I was just going to say that. 
the, the they're never if they're lucky they end up not getting the taint of being on a losing team if they're lucky but most guys who are like most of the guys in Ottawa right now good luck in getting those guys traded out of there <laughs> no one's gonna take them you know and that's because they're in Ottawa <laughs> Well, as, I mean, it, you can always find the diamond in the rough. You know, there's always that one guy who sort of has the force field that protects him from the taint. Mm-hmm. You know, Thomas Shabbat being the prime example. <laughs> but, yeah, you look at other guys on that team, and there are some serviceable players on there. But they'd be serviceable as second, middle six to, you know, bottom, bottom pairing type players on any other team. But they've now got the the so to speak stink on them, and and it's, it's kind of the same thing with Toronto the year that they tanked. It's you NHLers, know. you know, or NHL GMs. They want winners, even though they have no idea what that really means. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is is we'll touch on this more obviously later as we go on. But people that love the stats can find those players on those teams that still drive. But on a bad team, your stats are going to reflect that you're on a bad team. Mm-hmm. And you may actually be a very good possession player or passer or any one of these other key sort of metrics that that, that people track. But if the guy receiving the pass is crap, your stats are going to reflect that. So, I don't know. It's, it, you know, uh, how do you evaluate talent on a bad team to see if you can find those players? And I think right now, they don't. People look at the numbers and they go, oh, their numbers are crap. Their team is crap. This guy must be crap. Well, and that's that's a fundamental problem with the NHL generally anyway, is that you have a bunch, a bunch of people running the league, running the teams, and they're not good at evaluating talent, period. It's like if a guy goes out there and scores 50, you know, 30, 40, 50 goals, it's like, oh, you know, he's great, obviously. But, you know, can any of them actually point out and tell you what a good goaltender is? No. What a good defenseman is? No. What a good third-line, like, center is? Probably not. <laughs> your, your prime example of a guy that goes out and rips 50 goals, Jonathan Chichu. Mm-hmm. Was he was he a product of Joe Thornton, or you know because he played with Thornton previously and after? So how the hell did that happen? Right, his career just nosedived after that year. Mm-hmm. Was he a bad player? You know, is that is that sort of the was that the 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 full season epitome of the hot goaltender in the playoffs? Watching Chichu that year. Or was it a bad evaluation, or did he hit the wall? You know, had he just reached literally his peak and then cliffed? So I, I know Pat has subjects or, or, or thoughts on the prospect and drafting side of it and some of the talent evaluation. So yeah, to... it, 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 it's a crazy blob of blandness. If I had to sum it up in one term, just everyone kind of loves what they already picked up and they swear by it until it's, you know, 
until they can no longer lie to themselves and say, this just isn't working out here, or this doesn't taste good, or whatever sort of metaphor you want to use. Um, they Teams are too in love with players that they, they drafted and quote-unquote develop. <laughs> but then, you know, I, I look at uh, Chicago and Arizona, once again, making a trade, if, if you can believe that. This, this season where uh, Dylan Strome went to the Blackhawks for uh, uh, Nick Schmaltz. And for a few weeks, everything just worked out for both those players. They're both young. I think uh, Strome is maybe just turned 21. Schultz, a little older than that, not more by a year, but everything was working for both teams. Well, what did Arizona not see or not do with Strome? that's working so well in Chicago. And it's just, I think everything gets pigeonholed into a role or we've predefined this for you. And there's just no natural evolution of just letting things for a flow game. There's not a lot of flow in the developmental process. Well, if you, if you listen to some people, the, what changed with Strom was he got reunited with Debrinkat. Yeah. And, and sometimes, and, sometimes you just can't argue with what works. Stop trying to, you know. Yeah. Well, find an answer. I, I always go back to archetypes. It's not that it's that specific person; it's that archetype of player. You know, if if Arizona had a player of the similar similar archetype to a DeBrincat, you know, sort of the speedy winger, good positionally, gets into the right places, finds the holes. You know, Adam Oates had Brett Hull, right? Mm-hmm. Oats, Hull and Oates, you know, just skyrocketed because they were a symbiotic pair simply because Oates played one way, Hull played another, and those two archetypes sort of meshed well. The same thing with Thornton with a lot of his wingers. You, the years that he's really good, he's got the wingers that sort of mesh well with his style of play, which is half boards, you know sort of draw someone into him, find that little lane and you better be there. And it's pretty much one and done, right? He's a primary assist machine because he will sucker someone in, open up that lane and get it to you. And you better put it on net because you're going to be in prime position for it. Mm-hmm. And like, I, go ahead. No, I was, it's, you know, it's just sort of, you look at those sort of archetypes that mesh well together. And that when you find, you know, the Gretzky and the Curry, I mean, for crying out loud, you want to talk about a pairing. <laughs> Hall and Oates, right? <clears throat> so there's something to be said for it. And I think that's another reason why Dreisaitl and McDavid end up playing together. And it drives everyone nuts because they both should be driving their own line. Well, they're the only two players that mesh well on that team. Yeah, and I've always it's always driven me crazy that people are like, you need to divvy up the talent so it's all balanced on the team, on the front lines, you know, front and the, the defense, all of it. And I'm like, you know what? If they play well together, then it doesn't really matter. You know, if you're getting what you need out of that line or out of that pair because they happen to like, their their playing styles happen to mesh, then you run with it. I, I'm going to save my dry saddle McDavid for a rant cast. So Pat, <laughs> you, you were going to, you were going to say something earlier. Well, if we want to kind of tie back in the contracts and negotiations, we look no further than Jeff Skinner, who oh yeah, 
he 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 was finally jettisoned from Carolina. He finds instant instant success with Jack Eichel, which should have come to the surprise of no one. It's the first time in his career he played with a center that there was. They had a perfect relationship. Here's a big, fast body who can create space by rushing the puck up himself. Where Skinner made, you know, he made his money by kind of getting the puck in the neutral zone, taking it in himself, do some skating moves, and kind of grind second and third pairing defensemen to get his points all by himself. Now he has a little help that kind of works well with him and isn't, you know, forcing passes to where he isn't going, uh, which kind of plagued him in Carolina. And now all of a sudden he's one of the, he has one of the best goal totals in the league and Oh, he's a UFA and rumors are he wants an eight year deal, you know, just shy of what Mark stone signed with, with uh, Vegas. And everyone's like, Oh, they hem in the hall. And here's a situation where if something works and I had this conversation with someone at lunch the other day, Jeff Skinner would be a fool if he doesn't find a way to resign with Buffalo just to chase quote unquote more money. Patrick, going back to Strom, the other thing too, though, is that there's a there's also a simpler answer to some of this, is that maybe they're just happier in the new city that they're in. <laughs> Which is totally, you know, I I never discount that. Yeah, I mean, because like you know, it's, I, I people look at me strange here in Massachusetts when I say I moved from California, and they're like, willingly. <laughs> You willingly you know, moved from California? <laughs> you know what? You couldn't get me to move to California. And I love California, but and, I'm yeah. happier here. And so, you know, it's it's just for some people, that change of scenery is just what they need. Yeah. You know, I mean, and sometimes, you know, they click with the coach, they click with the teammates, you know, whatever it may be. But other times it's just as simple as I just like it here better. Yeah, great. You know, they always say great players can play with just about anyone and truly great players can play with just about anyone. So if you find talent level that's at least compatible with you in a city that you enjoy, you'd be crazy not to stay there and circling back around again to Pat's point. Skinner would be an absolute, and I don't want to say it, but I'll say it, idiot not to stay there. You know, drop your asking price because getting getting to play with the talent he's going to get to play with in the next couple of years, it's going to be absolutely unbelievable for him. That's assuming, of course, that, you know, they don't trade um, trade half of the team away because reasons <laughs> because Yarmo Kekalenic succeeded and you know everyone in the Buffalo front office you know thinks alright there's the model copy next season when they finally make their <laughs> their real playoff push the real one yeah Which, <laughs> I, I've heard arguments for that team where it, and we kind of touched on this earlier in this Everyone thinks you have to bottom out before you can kind of get back to the top. And 
New Jersey is kind of in a similar position where they, they lucked out and they made the playoffs last year, but they, everything that they did in their off season kind of suggested, we know we kind of got lucky and we had a player have an amazing hot streak and we had good goaltending. Things won't go so well this year. So let me kind of wait things out. We'll stock up and we'll make our run again, you know, 12 months from now. Buffalo, I think they were so hot coming out of the gate. They didn't really do anything in the trade deadline and they didn't, uh, you know, try to force themselves into a playoff. I think they're going to be dangerous next year if they just kind of tinker a little, add on to what they have. Um, Cause I think we're, we're finally starting to see beyond just the, the Pittsburgh's and the Chicago's and the Los Angeles's. I think we're going to see more ebbs and flows from teams and we're going to see shorter rebuilding cycles and, and shorter uh, periods of dominance like Tampa. I mean, what is their roster going to look like next season? Just because of the crunch they're under having to resign point and, and deal with, you know, forecasting their next two or three years. It's it's going to be interesting to see what some of these other teams can do to finally get out of the basement and see the powers that be kind of come back down to earth. I, I think Tampa Tampa's situation is going to largely depend on whether Julian Brisebois can has perfected the Iserman glare. <laughs> Because we all know that Steve Eiserman just basically sat across from the table from Stamkos and, and his management or his, his agent and, and group and just stared at him. No, I can tell you right now, no. <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've never officially met Breeze Bois, but I've run into him a couple of times in um, a couple of places. Anyway, but, and he just, he, he just comes off as the nicest guy and, and no, because <laughs> I mean, I I think largely it depends on who is in the GM chair, right? Because you look at what Steve Eiserman did with Druin. You don't want to play? Okay, we don't need you. Peace out. Yeah, he kind of screwed Druin. Actually, both him and uh, um, him and uh, Cooper kind of screwed Druin over. Well, I'm not. But I'm not saying Druin was blameless either, because he right, clearly, right. you know, he there's, he clearly had issues. But yeah, there's very rarely a zero fault situation. Right. Right. There's there's always some portion of blame to be shared between mm-hmm. two parties. But uh, you know, taking your stick and going home the way he did, it was just you know the epitome of you're going to play chicken with Steve Eiserman. Okay. Let me and know how that works out for you. Right? And that's what we were all like talking about too at the time. We were all just like, some people were like, oh, well, you know, Drew and Spoiled Brat doesn't want to go and play in the mm. minors. And I'm like, they brought him up. You know, his his rookie season was, he was right after he was drafted and they should have sent him back, like Connolly should have sent it back to Junior, didn't. And then... When they realized their mistake the following season and tried sending him back to the minors, it was, you know, too late. So. Yeah. Well, it, it wasn't too late. It was. Well, no, it was, well, but, it was yeah. too late for his ego. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so I, coming back to it, you know, Pat, I think you're going to find 
I think we'll find. I'm not going to say you're going to find. I said I, I think we'll find some some very tough negotiations coming for some of these guys. Um, and it's it's going to be weird because Nylander, I really do think, ringed, rung the bell for some of this stuff. you got potential RFAs coming that are going to want the money they think they deserve because, again, we go back to it's a guaranteed contract. Why wouldn't I want to max out what I can get right now? You know, it behooves you to sign them to a certain degree because if the cap continues to climb three to five percent every year as it's done since we've implemented it, my contract hit becomes less to you. It'll be painful for the first couple of years, but you know, by the by the third or fourth year, I'm almost half of what my hit is. Right? So it's gonna. It's such a. It's such a weird game. It's such a weird dance we're playing, you know. Because I think they all are talking in percentage of cap. Now they're not talking numbers. You know, I'm not seven million a year. It's ten percent of the cap or fifteen percent of the cap. That kind of stuff. And as a general manager, if I'm sitting there, I'm going, okay. At fifteen percent of the cap by. The third year, we go up 3% every year. I'm looking pretty good on this deal, provided he's young enough, provided he doesn't, you know, he remains uninjured, provided he still, provided he still performs. So it's just like every business, right? It's such a crapshoot. And we've rarely seen too many teams get really burned by the second contract where teams are overpaying. Um, sort of like we see with UFAs now where, you know, teams make plenty of mistakes on July one, you know, the anchor that is Milan Lucic contract to Edmonton. I mean, everyone saw that coming, but we haven't seen the story of what's the first bad second contract for a player that really hamstrings a team. I'm interested to see if we see that this off season. Yeah. Cause, um, Elliot Friedman continues to bring up in the last few times on 31 Thoughts, I think. No, not I think. On 31 Thoughts, there's that um, with respect to the um, offer sheets. Someone coming in and offering, you know, we'll pay you $15 million for one season. Knowing full well the team can't match except for term, and maybe they're going to end up offering more term than they wanted to in the first place. But that whole notion of finding the guy to bring in, you know, for a team like Ottawa or Arizona or Florida, who may have issues hitting the cap floor, finding a middling player coming in and maxing him out one year. What does that do to his value going forward? What does that do to um, the landscape of everyone else? Because GMs are group think one guy did it i might need to do it too so maybe these maybe these second contracts cease to be well like austin matthews like five years right they they kind of put themselves on the precipice of another problem in five years when they could have just said we'll sign you for one at max and sign you for one at max and played russian roulette or sign him for eight and paid more so i I don't know. This is is such a minefield. It's they're such a minefield. Gonna, 
They're not going to do offer sheets because the GM that, that does it is going to be looking around going, well, if I do it, then someone's going to do it to me, so I'm not going to do it to someone else. That's what's been stopping them all along, I think, is that if someone opens Pandora's box and says and starts waving around offer sheets, then ev- then it all becomes fair game, and then everybody's going to be like, oh, God, who's going to do that to me? So, <laughs> well, like you're saying, group think. <laughs> it's the one team that I would love – Oh God! You know, if if Columbus had stood on their ugly-looking, non-suited two and seven, and still lost Bobrovsky and Panarin, had all those draft picks, oh, good finish, boy! Yarmo Kekalainen offer sheeting someone. <laughs> I I am I am team maximum chaos when it comes to this stuff in hockey. Mm-hmm. I would have been so down for that. So down for that. Have him offer sheet um, Marner. You know, offer sheet him <laughs> for, you know, completely max salary, max term. Now, granted, it's a two, you know, it's a, it takes two to dance. The player would have to accept it, but just put it out there just to watch people's heads explode because here he is, you know, oh, I want maximum chaos. I do. I do watch the world burn I you know because I still miss those and I hate saying this because I rail against the trade deadline because it rarely works but I still love watching people make those big massive trades and then the media go crazy saying oh my god you know they're a shoe in for the cup you know oh my god this is just they're you know they're the powerhouse they won trade deadline and they flame out in the first round but it's still it's just that chaos drama yeah to a certain degree that's why we all like sports we love it for the drama it's the only reality tv show that's real yeah so what's the over under we see on on uh offer sheets actually signed i'll set it at one and a half Hmm. do we see do we see less than that or more I have to look at the RFAs available this year because I think there's going to be a couple of sneaky ones. I'm going to go two. I'm going to go flat two because I think there's a couple out there that are in that band where it's not going to kill you as draft picks, but they're good enough players that you would want to do it because you may not have an equivalent player in your system or available to you. So I'll say two. How about you, Cassie? Saying none. I don't think anyone's going to do it. Boo. I know. Well, don't boo me. (laughs) Boo the GMs. (laughs) Well, I'm more interested. How many players are going to be willing to actually sign their side of the deal? Um, Because I think there are going to be enough teams in kind of gridlock with their salary structures where even by using their, you know, 10 percent buffer over the summer they're not going to be able to get deals done without subsequent moves and i think the closer we get to training camp i don't think we're going to see any holdouts this upcoming season Ooh, i don't know about that i don't know about that Uh... see my question is 
How is the upcoming lockout going to affect free agency this summer and next summer? Boo. That's twice you get a boo for me. Boo. <laughs> My job here is done. See you guys later. Boo. <laughs> so, I mean, because, you know, it's like it's it's everyone knows there's going to be a lockout 2020, which is why Seattle's not starting until 2021. And, um, you know, it, it's our players going to and their agents going to just try to make bank. They're going to try to go for term and for for money, like, all out? Or are they going to, like, sit back and do, like, a one-year deal and, and see what happens? Well, kind of coming back around again, Pat, I think that's one of the things about Thornton is that he is now year by year. I think the last two years he's actually been year by year. He's mm-hmm. just sort of sat around. He's not signing anywhere else but San Jose. No. Right? And then he just sort of sits around and sees what Doug Wilson's got left in the coffer after he's done with everything else and says, I'll sign for that. So I'm kind of wondering if it'd be interesting to see if players didn't start going more year to year when they reach a certain level. They get to that UFA year and they go, I'm not interested in seven-year deals. I want a year to year at, at a massive amount. And I think that might lead back into the whole discussion earlier about they're smarter with their money. So they may not, they may continue on playing year to year wanting to make a lot of money, but if they don't end up getting it, I'm okay. Cause I've been investing, I've been saving, I've been doing the smart things with it so that I don't need it. You know, I'm still growing my money exponentially that this is almost, and I hate to say the term throwaway money, but it's almost throwaway money to them. I wonder if we'll see that point because Matthews, I fully expected Matthews to sign a longer term deal than he did. For him to do what he did kind of hints at both parties saying, well, we'll Toronto saying we'll take the risk you know, at the end of this deal that you're still going to be a premier player and to stay here, you're going to want a massive amount, but we'll also take the risk that the cap's going to be up enough that it won't be that bad. And he's taking the risk to a certain degree saying, I'm going to be worth, I'm going to be worth three times this by the time this deal's up. But I don't know. And you also have to wonder when he's going to bolt for Arizona, because you know that he's going to want to play for for the Coyotes at some point. Okay, that's you're getting you're getting a third boo boo. <laughs> it's been a good night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure it has. <laughs> well, let's just. Oh. I'm I'm trying to look up on Cap Friendly really quick because I want to at least have some I, some concept of who might be um, that sort of RFA um, offer sheet because I think there's a couple in there. There's there's that compensation band like above a certain amount. It's four first round. It's four consecutive first round draft picks and. You'd have to be absolutely, completely stupid to do that, even for Connor McDavid. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I just blasphemed. Feel free to boo me. But 
<laughs> right? Um, but a guy that costs you a first, a second, and a third in consecutive draft years, that's doable to me. Right? I, for me, playing fantasy NHL GM and the guy that does this in the EA Sports games, I don't mind giving up a consecutive first, second, and third for a guy that I think is going to be worth at least a second-round pick, you know, a second-round pick-type player, um, to sign him an offer sheet and get him at a fixed deal and maybe also give a little bit of a screw job to the team I'm signing him from. Because I can get that. You know, the first year is... The first round pick is always in the subsequent year. I'm fine with that. The second and the third, I can recoup somewhere else. So as much as I mock Doug Wilson for certain moves, kicking the can down the road sometimes helps. A lot of teams do that way too much, though. Very much so. And, I, and, and I'll deride him now by saying San Jose is a prime example of a team that does that too much. How many of those guys in their, in their top 12 forwards are their draft picks same thing with their defense he kicks a can down the road mm-hmm. he does it every year repeatedly does a good job of it i'm not discounting that but sometimes you got to get worse to get really better and good is the enemy of great so so it makes me wonder all right with the potential of seattle team coming on board all the talk in the world has been all right gms have learned from their mistakes they're not going to overreact to the next expansion draft coming forward (laughs) with the with the rfa situation as it is this summer will teams overreact trade jettison picks other players to avoid offer sheets this june Hmm. Well, Matthew Kachuk not going to get offer sheeted. They're going to get a deal done before it comes to that line A. Uh, oh God, line A is going to be really interesting. Line mm-hmm. A better show up. Line A better show up in the playoffs because the, the the tenor out of Winnipeg is you know that whole turbulence. Oh. I, I think you're looking at the wrong player from Winnipeg. Well, Truba, I think, is going to get done. Do you? See, yeah. I would say Truba, of all the players, to me, he seems like the most likely to sign an offer sheet. Really? Yeah. He took his bridge deal. Yeah, that's true. If If Winnipeg can't put it together today and win the Cup this year... Yes, they have nice, nice stock of prospects, but if he could pick and choose his team, because Winnipeg's going to be up against it because they still have, all right, they have the line A situation, whatever that ends up being. They have Kyle Connor coming up, and then they're going to, you know, the problem with having a great prospect system is eventually you got to pay some players, and eventually you got to lose some. He could be in control of the situation should he choose. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this could be really interesting. This is gonna be a very interesting off season. 
Let's hope so for Team Chaos' sake. So I have a question, because I'm not certain what the answer of this is, and maybe you guys might be. Um, so Vegas started playing around with their potential picks a year or two before. And so um, I don't remember if Seattle gets to... I mean, Seattle's going to have the same expansion draft rules. So should they choose, can they actually start this year playing with like their draft picks, like trading around things, people and stuff? Or do they have to wait until the following season? I think they have to be chartered as an NHL franchise before they can do that. There's some there's some ruling that there there's some legal paperwork and stuff that has to be filed and they're actually an NHL franchise because right now they're still in the process of becoming one. Okay. And, at the, and at the point they become one, then they have to actually officially register a start date for franchise operations and stuff. And when their team is slated to join the league, and from that point forward, then yes. So, and, yeah. And if they, memory serves me correctly, what Vegas did is it, they were required to submit the final payment of their uh, expansion fee. And once that was done, I believe that date was almost set in the immediate future. So, yeah, there's they, they it's almost like buying a house. There's some escrow period that you go through. You know, there's like 45 days or something before you close on the deal and you get the keys. It's sort of like that. Mm -hmm. You do all your final paperwork and then you get the keys to the NHL franchise and then you can start signing players as well as trading. Okay. Because I was just wondering how that would fit into your chaos theory. They're, they're chaos next year. I'm pretty sure it'll be chaos next year. Okay. I, I, I think what they want to do is basically, if I remember the timeline from Vegas correctly, they at least wanted to give them eight months before the entry draft or the expansion draft. To okay. start ramping up operations and that, and you know, filling out other roles because they already had their GM and everybody picked out at that point. But I think they wanted to give them something like eight months. I have to go back and look at the dates again. But they wanted to give them sufficient enough time because they were. I, I remember they'd signed um, Reed Duke. Yeah. You know, very, 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 like almost day one, they were officially a franchise. Yeah. Is pretty close to that because you know our starting lineup was Reduke guy 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 guy. guy. <laughs> yeah, and they like marketed him to death. Yeah, and then I think the trade deadline immediately after their paper was finalized. I think that was the moment they could officially begin working with their own draft picks in the subsequent draft that summer in yeah. uh, 2017. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was all like future stuff, yeah. Sort of like we just learned this past year that you can't sign a player to an eight-year deal unless they were on your reserve list before the trade deadline. Kind of silliness like that. Yeah, which is why a lot of people were like, oh, they can't sign Eric Carlson in San Jose until after February something. Yeah. To the max. You know, prior to that, it was only seven years because the way, you know, he wasn't a UFA at the time. So, and he had to be on, yeah, there's some weird, you have to be on the roster for a fixed period of time, blah, blah, blah. 
They haven't gotten around those rules yet. Rules yet? Uh, loophole Lou has not found a way through it. So if Loophole Lou hasn't found a way through it, it probably doesn't exist. <laughs> Can't believe that. This is the NHL. All the rules are like Swiss cheese. <laughs> but it's Loophole Lou. <laughs> oh, if he hasn't found it. The problem is no one prints these things out anymore. They just try and, you know, search on their PDF copies on their machines. <laughs> if they know how. <laughs> and that's a big if with some people. I know, right? It's like control F, people. It's control F. Alexa, find me loophole in CBA. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want Cupertino making those decisions. <laughs> sure we do. Although it actually be Mountain View, not Cupertino. But anyway. That's Google. <sighs> Apple. I said Alexa. That's Seattle, young lady. <laughs> that's Amazon. Who? <laughs> oh, All right. So do we have a question? We do. And let's go in a completely different, go down a different road entirely. Iceberg. Different. Iceberg the it's question. A... So we talked about, speaking of guys that may or may not know how to search a PDF, <laughs> Brent Burns. He is one of those vaulted players from the 2003 NHL entry draft. Joining names of players like two-time Stanley Cup champion Dustin Brown, one-time Stanley Cup champion Eric Stahl, Corey Perry, Ryan Getzlaff. Uh, zero-time Stanley Cup champion Ryan Getzler. Um, and the names kind of go on and on and on. Oh, did I mention Marc-Andre Fleury went first overall that year? Why are you oh. trying to give me nightmares? <sighs> this is why. Okay. For a vaulted Hall of Fame class of players that's coming into their mid-30s, how many Hall of Fame players can we expect from that group? Oh, oh, that is a great year, and that is a loaded question. Oh, my first question, which you can't answer. My first question, which is how I'm going to mention it now, is is who's on the uh, who's on the committee? <laughs> who's on the the uh, uh, hockey hall of fame committee that makes those decisions? Or is that going to change? Because that would probably be your answer. The answer is yes. <laughs> oh, crap. Yeah. Man. And hockey women. Cassie Campbell Pascal is on the committee, if I remember correctly now, too. She is. is she? And she'll yeah. have to uh, excuse herself so she can finally get elected. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she is. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Bob McKenzie's on there, too, if I remember correctly. Wow. Oh, crap. That is a loaded question. Okay. that Nice cliffhanger. Now I have to do some research. Damn it. Follow us on Twitter at 3B3 Podcast. This has been the 3B3 Podcast, sponsored by Nobody. <laughs>